morning. You guys can have a seat. Hey, good morning. Welcome to Grace City. If I hadn't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is David. I'm the teaching pastor here. Thank you so much for being here and being a part of our community this morning. How's this for both, both an unpastoral and really an unchristian confession that I'm going to make to you guys? There are times in my life when I wish God was selective in his love for others to make me feel better about myself, right? There are times in my life when I wish God was selective in his love for others, maybe he loved them just a little bit less than he loved me in order to make me feel better about myself. I, I, like, I wish that wasn't the case, but there are way too many times when that's probably a fair and accurate statement in my life. Because here's the deal, if I knew God loved them less, or if I knew that God was selective in his love, if I knew he loved me more in some ways, then that would help me know I was on the right track. That would help me know I was doing the right thing. And really, it would let me know that I am right to be judgmental and bitter and pessimistic against them, against the other, because somehow I would be joining God in his divine judgment against them, right? So that would let me know something's going right in my life. And so never does it cross my mind, never does it cross my mind that I could be the other to somebody else. Never does it cross my mind that, that, that God could be, you know, loving me less to show somebody else that he favors them more. No, when I have that thought of God, I, I wish you were selective in your love for others. When I have that thought, I'm always right, they're always wrong, and God just needs to get on board. Like that's, that's a, a, a thought that I have sometimes. Here's the deal. I don't think I'm alone in that opinion. I don't think I'm alone in kind of having that attitude, having that thought sometimes. Because I mean, really, life would be so much easier if we knew God didn't love LSU fans, right? Like we knew, life would be, I'm sorry if you're an LSU fan. Okay, just put it on if God didn't love Bama fans or State fans or Ole Miss fans or Alcorn fans or whatever, all right? Like it would just be so much easier, right? If we knew that, if somehow maybe he just loves them less, make life easier. You know where I'm going with this, right? I go with the one that we can laugh at first, but let's, let's push a little bit, right? It would be so much easier if we knew God didn't love the other political party. It'd be so much easier if we knew that God didn't love the rich, or he didn't love the poor, or if he didn't love the Pharisee, or if he didn't love the rebel. It'd be so much easier if, if God was okay with his churches kind of reflecting that. It would be so much easier if God didn't want his churches to be mixtures of these groups of people. It would be so much easier if our churches could just be larger expressions of self-love and really a communal expression of narcissism. It would just be so much easier. But thankfully, thankfully, that is not who God is and that is not what God desires for his people. That is not the God of Scripture who says he does not show favoritism, but accepts men and women from every nation who fears him. God pours out his love and his kindness onto any and to all, on the sinners and the self-righteous to help lead towards repentance and to help lead towards trusting in his saving grace. And so when I remember that I'm among the sinners, when I remember that I am most definitely among the judgmental self-righteous, that I am very grateful, very grateful that God is not selective in his love. I am very, very grateful that God is not selective in his love, but desires to give it to any and to all to find hope and joy and repentance in him. To act any other way, to wish for any other way, to wish that God was selective in his love and hold it, withholding it for, from others, to act in any other way is to stand against the character, the will, and the plan of God. And that, that's a very scary place to be. In Acts chapter 10, we meet a man named Cornelius. 
Now, in addition to having a funny name and one that's a little bit hard for me to pronounce, I'm probably going to trip over it. <laughs> you might ha handle it fine. For some reason, it's a tongue twister for me. Uh, Cornelius was a military man, one that was very well thought of, very well respected by his peers. In fact, so much so, he was, he was such a uh, strong military man uh, and, and such a good leader of men, such a seasoned leader, that he was given the rank of centurion in the Roman army. Now, this is noteworthy of, of Cornelius' life because centurions were, even to this day, still considered like the backbone of the Roman army. They're the reason they were so powerful. They were the reason that they had such a stretch across the global theaters of war was, was because of these centurions that were so well-respected, so disciplined, um, so focused on their task. And so for Cornelius to, to be a centurion, it lets us know how Rome views Cornelius and lets us know a little bit of the status that he carried. That said, Cornelius is a bit of an unusual person because in Acts chapter 10, we also learn that he is a God-fearing Roman centurion. And that is quite the anomaly because to be a good Roman soldier, to be a good Roman citizen, one had to believe that Caesar was God and fight for him as such. And so this lets us know, hey, Cornelius is, is different. He's recognized, no, there's a higher power than Caesar. There's a higher power than, than, than Rome. He, he recognizes that one day he will stand before an almighty, powerful, sovereign God, and he will have to answer to that God rather than simply answering to a man who's declared himself to be God. And so Cornelius is known as a God-fearing Roman centurion. In fact, he's known among the Jewish people as being a God-fearing Gentile. And so for Cornelius to have developed for himself this reputation among the Jewish people, it lets us know how far he has worked to kind of distance himself from, from kind of the, the violent and brutal and oppressive measures that, that characterize so many Roman soldiers, so many Roman centurions. It lets us know that he's distanced himself from that. In fact, in Acts chapter 10, we get a little bit more of a description of him. It says that he was a generous man, a generous with those who were in need. And so now we're getting even more a picture of who Cornelius is. He's just, a much, just as much a man of compassion, mercy, empathy, as he is one of duty, honor, and service. But this is no small thing for the Jewish people to consider him a God-fearing Gentile in that in this culture, Jewish people hated the Gentiles and the Gentiles hated the Jewish people. There was no love lost between the two of them. And it was amplified even more when the Jewish people considered some of the Gentiles who were actually instruments of the Roman occupation. And that's how they viewed it. Remember the Jewish people, they, they were brought up knowing, believing in, because they are, they're God's chosen people. God had given them this land to, to be their land, to be the place where they had a nation uh, that was their own. They could live in such a way to where all would know the God of the Israelites is the one true God. But in their history, they sinned against the Lord. They were unfaithful to him. They, 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 they broke God's covenant. They broke God's promise. And so God, in his discipline of them, and, and really fighting for their heart, he allowed the land to be taken from them. And so these pagan empires come in and they, they conquer the land. And it really passes down from one pagan empire to the next, all the while the Jewish people or, or, or exiled, or scattered, or oppressed, or abused. And so over the generations, you have Jewish people hating the Gentile, and the Gentile hating the Jewish people, and it just builds one generation after another. There's so much animosity between the two. And then Jesus comes and preaches his gospel. 
Jesus preaches the message and the truth that, that, that God's love is for any and for all, is both for the Jew and the Gentile, and he demonstrates it as he ministers, and then he commands his disciples to carry it forward, to preach the gospel in all nations, make disciples, teach them everything I've commanded you, be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. The early church knew that was the trajectory, knew that was the plan, knew that was the command, that this gospel is to go to any and to all, but it would be a work in progress for the church, and I would say it still is. But it goes from primarily being a church made up of, of, of Jewish believers to then, to then going to, to the Samaritans, those who were half Jewish and half Gentiles. And so they were responding to the hope of the gospel, and they were having to be kind of brought in and assimilated in and, and worked in or, or just treated as, as part of the family of God. But that was kind of a stretch in and of itself. That was a challenge in and of itself. But, but now we get to Acts 10, and now it's going even further. Because in Acts chapter 10, the Holy Spirit is going to show definitively how the gospel is both for the Jewish people and for the Gentile. And how the, the power and the ministry and the presence of the Holy Spirit is not segmented to just one type of person from one background, from one culture, but it is for any and for all. And we see this when Cornelius responds to the truth of who Jesus is as it is preached to him by the Apostle Peter. And I want you to see it. I want us to walk through this, I want us to walk through this experience. Go to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, the, the story uh, of Peter and Cornelius actually happens in Acts chapter 10, and, and so you can kind of get the long version there. In Acts 11, Peter, uh, we get a recap, and Peter has to give a recount, recap because he is answering charges against his ministry, basically. Um, there were some that, that, that took issue with what Peter has done because he's not just shared the gospel with the Gentile. He's actually shared a table with him. He, he ate with him. He went into this Gentile's home. And there were some in the early church that still felt like there needed to be this separation between the Jewish people and the Gentile people. And so they find fault with what Peter has done. And they make him give an answer. They make him uh, give an account for his actions. And this is what we come in on in Acts chapter 11, verse 1. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. All right, let's stop there because there's a few just unusual descriptions there of some groups of people. Um, there's the, the circumcised men. This lets us know um, that, um, that they are part of the, the, the Jewish Christians. Again, that really made up the majority of the early church at this time. But that's more than that, in that they believe, part of the circumcised group or circumcised believers, they held this position that, that someone had to convert to Judaism first before you could follow Christ. Part of converting to Judaism would be the act of circumcision. So they're believing, hey, this has to happen for someone before they can follow Christ. This hasn't happened with, with the Gentiles. This hasn't happened with Peter. And so again, they find fault with Peter eating with those who are uncircumcised. But then Peter responds, verse 4, starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds. Then I heard a voice telling me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. I replied, surely not, Lord, nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and then it was all pulled up to heaven again. So Peter's praying when the Holy Spirit gives him this vision that completely changes the game. 
This is a paradigm-shifting vision for Peter. In addition to just letting him say, hey, time for bacon. You know, it's like more than that, right? Like, like more than just kind of new food groups being added to Peter. That's not really what this is about. It's, it's bigger than that, all right? It's this vision that God is giving to Peter that, it, that he lowers this down. Because for Peter's entire life, he's been raised Jewish. And, and he, he was raised according to the mandates of Scripture that commanded there are clean and there are unclean, uh, unclean types of, of food. And this dominated Peter's upbringing, dominated the, the Israelite people. And in fact, um, it was a cultural marker for them because there were no other people groups that abided by these types of dietary restrictions. And so it was a way that marked them as the people of God. Still to this day, when archaeologists are doing digs in the Holy Land, if they get to a city and they find pig bones among the, the settlement, they know, hey, this is not a, a, a Jewish city. This is a, a predominantly a Gentile city. That lets you know how strong of a, of a demarcation this was between God's people, the Israelites, and, and between the, the Gentile. And so yet Peter now gets this vision from God where the sheet is lowered down and all these different un, uh, unclean animals are there and it's kill and eat. And Peter's like, nope. <laughs> it's like, you're not going to get me. It's almost like he thinks it's a trap or a trick. Like, you're not going to get me with this one. Good one, God. You know, and it's, it's like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do this. But then he gets this word, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. So, so, so maybe, again, this whole thing is not just about food. Maybe this is about um, God's work in and on somebody, so, uh, uh, in and on a person. Do not make anything, do not consider something unclean that God has made clean. We have no ability to deem it one way or the other because it's God's decision and God's alone. What is clean? Who is clean? Who is unclean? And so really that's, now we're getting to the takeaway here. The takeaway of this vision that God has given to Peter is not that Jews are clean and Gentiles are unclean. The lesson rather is that God alone is the one who cleans and restores. That's the message of the gospel, right? Like we, we believe in the hope of Christ that, that when we confess our sin and trust in him, that God's word is faithful, to, to, that, that God is faithful to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to cleanse us from our sin, that God is the one who makes us clean again, that makes us pure again, that, that saves us. That's the hope of the gospel. No man or woman can go against that, no matter how you feel about the other. No matter how you feel about the other person, no matter how much you wish God was selective in his love, like this is the hope of the gospel. When someone responds and trusts in Christ, forgiveness is granted. And they're made clean and, and, and pure before, uh, before a, a holy and righteous God. We cannot call anything or anyone impure that God has made clean. That's the bottom line of this vision. And it's a vision that God gives to Peter to prepare him for what he was about to do in Cornelius, in Cornelius' household, and even among the Gentiles. And we know this because as soon as Peter's vision is over, we learn that God has given Cornelius a vision as well. Look at his, verse 11. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. Remember, this is big time taboo. Like, again, Jewish people would not facilitate or not uh, facilitate. Would not, uh, that's not the word, would not hang out with Gentiles, right? They would, like Gentiles, they, there's, there's that separation. It wasn't just taboo. It was, in some places, it was just against the law for them to have that interaction. Peter's like, I had no hesitation. I know this is something God was calling me to do. He had, uh, these six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. 
he told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. So remember, we have Cornelius, the, 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 the Roman centurion, the one that's, that's all about honor, service, loyalty. When he gets a command, he's going to follow it. And he has this vision, he has this interaction with the angel. The angel tells him, hey, this is going to happen. You send for Peter. Peter's going to come. He's going to preach you this message. It's going to lead to life. And so, you mean, you can almost feel it like Cornelius is just primed. Whatever Peter says, I'm believing, right? Like, if this Peter guy shows up, I'm all in because this is from God. This is a message from God to me and to my family. And sure enough, that's his reaction because when Peter preaches to Cornelius, he doesn't wait for the end of the sermon. Like, he doesn't wait for, like, a response song. He doesn't wait for the invitation. Like, Peter shows up and Cornelius is in. I'm, I'm believing in your message. And it happens so fast for him that, that instantly the Holy Spirit dwells in the heart of Cornelius and of those who believe. We'll read it, verse 15. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit dwells on, on Cornelius and those in his household who are believing this message that Peter has, has brought to them, this message of hope and who Christ is and what he's done. And now Peter, as he's giving a defense, as he's telling him why he's doing this, as he's telling him why he was there, he's like, look, the Holy Spirit dwelled on the Gentiles, just like the Holy Spirit dwelled on us on the day of Pentecost. And if you were with us last week, we looked at this in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit was poured out onto God's people. And Peter says it happened the exact same way among the Gentiles. And, and so much so that the scholars, even to this day, call Acts 10 the Gentile Pentecost. And so Peter's like, look, it happened. We saw the power of God in and on their life. And so this should be the moment. This should be the moment. And I do think it is. I think it starts, I think the, I think the Jewish Christians that are kind of pushing back against this, I think they start to connect the dots here a little bit. Because what is happening, and let's connect it back to the, to the whole narrative of Scripture. Remember, okay, God, God chose the Israelites. I will bless you. You will be my people. I will be your God. He, cho he chooses them to, to be a blessing to all nations, right? And we already talked about that. He gave them his word. They live by his word, points to the one true God of the Israelites. So that's one way that they were blessing all nations throughout the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, Christ is born among the, uh, among the Israelites, born through the, through the Jewish people. And now we're seeing that the hope of Christ's gospel can restore and redeem and save all who are far off. From every, uh, from, from every nation. And so now we're seeing yet another way that God is, is using the Jewish people to bless all the nations, ultimately through Christ and the work that he has done on the cross. But they won't be that blessing. And they, these, these Jewish Christians in the church, they won't be that blessing if they get in the way of it. They, they won't be that blessing if, if these Jewish Christians force others to first convert to Judaism before they follow Christ. They won't be that blessing if somewhere in there they, they, they get it crossed up in their brains that, that God blessed us so that he can curse others. They, they, they won't get it, they won't be a blessing if they, if they forget that God has blessed them to bless others. They won't be that blessing if they forget that God has loved them so that they can in turn be loving. You know, these, these, these Jewish Christians, the early church, they have the gospel. They have the hope that's both for the Jew and for the Gentile, and they can bless the whole world with it. And Peter catches it. He sees it. He understands what God is doing. You can see it in verse 17. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think I could stand in God's way? 
who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? What a statement of humility and what a statement of faith in the sovereign wisdom and plan of God. Who am I to stand in the way? Who, who, who am I? Who am I to think that God should or shouldn't love someone? Who am I to think that God should or should not give grace or favor or mercy or understanding to any type of person? Peter realizes that he is finite, that he is flawed, that he is sinful, that God alone is judge, that God alone is all-knowing, that God alone knows the measure of their faith, of their repentance, of their desire to follow God. And so if they have trusted in him, if they're believing in the hope of the gospel, then who am I to stand in the way? of what God is doing. Who am I to stand in the way of the plan of God? How often do we do this though? How often do we stand in the way of what God is doing in someone else's life? Like, I, I, I don't know what the deal is because again, we, we, we want God to be selective in his love sometimes to love us a little bit more, maybe love them a little bit less, or, or it's a, maybe another expression that is kind of culture wars, right? Where, where, where we determine our own sense of self-value, our own sense of self-worth, off of the other, off of the misdeeds of the other, off of the sins of the other. And we feel like that's what we're called to do. That's not what we're called to do. We're the church. We have the hope of the gospel. We have this message of love, and Christ has called us to engage with that. That's what we are called to do, to share the gospel, live the gospel, preach the gospel, and then trust the Holy Spirit to do His work in the hearts and lives of others, in the hearts and lives of other people. That's what we're called to do. That's what we're called to engage. So to judge beforehand, right? To, to judge beforehand, to, to be selective in who we'll share the gospel with and who we'll withhold it from, to be selective in who we'll practice hospitality with and who will refrain the practice of hospitality, to, to be selective in that. It's us saying, uh, I don't know, God, I don't know if you really mean that here. I don't know if you really mean all, like everybody. I don't know if you really mean it with this person because I know what they've done. I know where they've come from. I know what's, what's happening there. You don't really want them to be part of your family. You don't really want them to be here. So be a little bit selective. And so when that rises up in us, we, we position ourselves as a roadblock, as a bouncer, as an obstacle. We put ourselves in the way of what God is doing and we try to stand against him. Now here's the, here's, I struggle with how to say this because like I don't wanna, um, I, I don't wanna overlook your lived experience. I don't wanna overlook what's happened in your life, what's happened to you. Um, I don't wanna overlook what, what, what you've walked through because like you, you saw how much damage the family member did. Like you know the actions of, of your dad, of your brother, of your sister, and saw the collateral damage throughout your family. And, and so like there's, you, you've seen that happen and it's wounded you and it's hurt you and it's, it's created all this just how do I process this? And this is, and, and like, how do I respond to that? Or, or maybe it's outside of family. Maybe you saw like the boss abuse the position and you just saw how much carnage that created. Or maybe you just get sick and tired of seeing the same group of individuals gather power for themselves and, and just marginalize others. Maybe you get sick and tired of hearing the politics of the other that demonize, devalue, and dehuman any of those who disagree with. And so we watch all that happen. We watch all these, these, these things break and we think, okay, they, they just need to know their sin a little bit more. 
Like they just, they just need to know their sin a little bit more and maybe even experience a little bit of the wrath of God, a little bit of the judgment of God in their life and, but before I can really do anything with them. And look, that's, that's a real reaction that happens for us, right? And if I was to sit across the table from you and you told me what happened to you, I would probably, like, I would, I would understand because, I mean, we're, we're human. We've seen that. We've watched that. You, you've seen those tears. You've cried those tears yourself. And so those are real emotions that well up that it's like, I don't know if I want God to love them. I don't know if I want God to love them. And so when, when we have that and that bubbles up to the service, it's okay, what do we do with this? How do I handle this? How do I process this? Like, because I don't want to stay here because I'm feeling this bitterness and I'm feeling it and it is eating me. So what do I, what do, I do here? How do I, how do I move? I, I think that like the, the first thing, maybe this is the only thing you can do at that moment, at that stage and kind of the healing and the process. It's God, help me, help me to see this emotion. Okay, help me, help me to confess this emotion. It's there, it's, it's something I'm walking through, but God help me to say, okay, I know this is not healthy, so let me confess it to you, and then God help me to pray for them. Because I can pray for someone and not agree with them. I can pray for someone and not give them a pass. I can pray for someone and, and not have to endorse their actions, their politics, their ideologies, their theology. God, I, I can pray, like, I, I'm, I, I might be praying judgment on them, but I can pray for them. Like, like, God, help me, help me to pray for them in this moment. Because I do think when we start to ask that and maybe begin to pray for someone, I do think that puts us on the path of loving them. And we haven't even gotten to that part yet, right? Like, like scripture does call us to love our enemies. But so often, that can be hard to fathom. That can seem impossible. Like, how am I ever going to get there? And so I think, let's, let's start by praying for them. And then I also think what we see in Acts 11, sometimes the first thing we need to do is get out of the way of God loving them. Get out of the way of God loving them. Don't stand in opposition to what God is, might be doing in their lives because God could be leading them towards repentance. Could be leading them towards repentance. Peter, Peter saw that in this moment, knew that he was a, a messenger, and knew that he was a messenger of the gospel, and so he, he, he took it to Cornelius. Now, to be sure, in this text, uh, Cornelius... Um, as far as Gentiles go, was, you know, he's God-fearing and, and kind of halfway there on, on, on his own, right? Um, I think, I could be wrong, you could uh, debate me on this, and that'd be fine. I don't think it changes our interaction with the text. Um, I, I think um, God chooses Cornelius because I think it's an act of grace to these Jewish Christians. I think it was going to be a little bit easier for them to open their minds to, okay, Cornelius is in on this. Um, but, but at the same time, it's kind of like baby steps, like, oh, okay, all right. <laughs> Maybe this does is for Cornelius. But at the same time, they know, they know that this is going to be opening the door of faith to the Gentiles. And we see that in their reaction because they don't take their ball and go home. They don't get mad. They actually respond in worship. Look at verse 18. When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God saying, So then, even to the, even to the Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. I love that verse. <laughs> like, I, and I, because there's, 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 I just, there's so much in that one verse that I love. And some of you are snickering because you kind of know where I'm headed with this. Because like in this one verse, there's equal parts praise and worship to God. Like, you know, praise God for this. But there's also a little bit of an expression of real life and that you can still hear how they feel about the Gentiles, right? It's like, praise God, even let the Gentiles lead to repentance, right? So like there's this statement, apparently nobody else thinks that's funny in the second service. The first service, they liked it. So, but, but there's this, uh, 
you, you hear that, right? It's kind of like this backhanded expression of praise, backhanded expression of, of worship. Um, even to the Gentiles, God has granted repentance. That's in, why I like that being in here, why, why it's encouraging to me is that, again, God sovereign over his word, allowing that statement to be here. I, I feel like is a, is, is, is a, is a step of, is, a, is a, an act of grace to us because like you see, you can still see where the Jewish Christians are in this, right? You can still see, hey, they've still got issues uh, with, with the Gentiles, but they're on the path towards loving them. Later on in Philippians, where, when the Apostle Paul is writing to a church that's kind of equal parts Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, he's going to call and command them to be one in, one in spirit, to, be, uh, to have one mind. And so we know that they're, they're going to get there, but right here it's kind of that first step they're getting out of the way of what God is doing in their life. And I think this helps, it can help us because it's, it, it lets us understand. Maybe step one is obedience to preach and share the gospel with whoever God places in our midst or, or, around, or around us. So it's, it's following Peter's example, preaching the gospel, sharing the gospel with any and with all whom God places around us. Then getting out of God's way and watching the Holy Spirit do his transformative work in their hearts and lives, believing, trusting that it's going to lead at least to reconciliation of them to God, and then perhaps even reconciliation within the family of God. And so you can see these, these steps of grace, these, um, this, this step of response here and, and in this to, to one that perhaps they wanted to be selective uh, and there are hope that God would be selective, but this isn't for the Gentiles. You know what I mean? And so let's bring it back full circle. Who is it that you're thinking of right now? Is it a person? Is it a family member? Is it a coworker? Is it a group of people? Is it a segment of people? Who is it that, that sometimes you wish God was selective in his love for them? So now that you have that thought or that image, let me ask you this. Is God calling you? to follow the role of Peter, to be the one to open the door of faith to them? Is God calling you to, to follow the role of Peter, Peter and being the one to show hospitality towards them, to extend fellowship to them? Is God calling you to, to, to be the one to, to show and put flesh and blood on this truth that the gospel really is for any and for all? So maybe is it that, or does God, is God helping you to see that, that maybe somehow along the way you're playing the role of kind of those Jewish Christians that are passing judgment on someone else who's doing this work? And so is God saying, hey, you need to get out of the way of what I'm doing in that person's life or, or in that group of people's life, and really more so than just get out of the way, find a way to pray for it, to, 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 to fuel into the work that is happening. So those are two questions that I have for you there. And then the third one is this, and this is a bit of a turn on the text, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Are you standing in the way of what God wants to do in your life? Are you standing in the way of what God wants to do in your life? Maybe you consider yourself too far gone. Maybe you consider your, your, yourself like the, to be beyond the hope of God's love and reach and forgiveness. And yet you hear the message of how God loves, how God pursues. You hear the message of how Christ died for any and for all, and yet you keep standing in the way of it. And so perhaps this morning, God is leading you, prompting you. The Holy Spirit is just telling you, get out of the way of what God wants to do in your life. And just say yes. Say yes to him. Say yes to what, what God is doing, to what God has done. Because after all, who are you to stand in the way of what God is doing?